0: Welcome to season two of Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. We invite you to explore our freebies on the art of teaching through our Patreon page. This month, we will feature our guest and scientist, Dr. Steve Mitchwitty. If you're a member of our Patreon page, you can access our bonus podcast episode with Dr. Matwidi and Trey discussing the all-important topic of science posters and why they matter even in a classical school. Visit patreon.com forward slash Again, patreon.com forward slash education and take advantage of the freebies we offer as a thank you for your support. Enjoy the show. Today, we have uh, Dr. Steve Mitwitty on, and uh, you may recognize his name from our Facebook page, uh, Classical Education. He he's tends to post lots of little wonderful quotes from Aristotle, <laughs> metaphysics, and various other sorts. And uh, Trey can't be here today, um, so um, I'm going solo today. Uh, so we're going to make the interview kind of short, probably about 30 minutes, even though I have about an hour and a half. Worth of questions to ask uh, Dr. Mitwitty, and uh, but we're going to start off with just probably two questions because he can share a lot. He's got a he's a wealth of knowledge, <laughs> and we we all need help with how to teach science classically. It's a big topic. Um, so with that, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and give a little background about his. Uh, his work in the field of science and as a classical teacher, and uh, what matters most to him, and then we'll dive into some really great questions.
1: Thanks, Adrian. I should mention that my formal training through the doctoral level is in geology, so earth science. Uh, What I'm doing now is teaching earth science to sixth graders. Previously, I've taught earth science to seventh graders, taught physical science to eighth graders, I've taught environmental science to twelfth graders, but all of my effort right now is going into earth science. But when we say earth science, we're actually talking about space science, atmospheric science, earth science proper, uh, solid earth, uh, geology, and of course, ocean sciences, at least to some extent. Uh, in the midst of that, we also talk about soils and, and you know, rock cycle and, and whatnot. But uh, again, my training is in geology. And so I'm, I'm working in my wheelhouse as an earth science teacher even though I've had to grow a lot in my understanding of space science and atmospheric science to be able to do my job well. In addition to my training in geology, I also have uh, graduate degrees in intercultural studies, in uh, theology, and also in educational leadership. So I'm, I'm truly uh, the poster child for lifelong learning. I've been to school pretty much my whole life and uh, consider it a privilege to be a teacher uh, of science. Uh, But at the same time, in addition to my passion for science, I love uh, teaching Bible and theology, and I've had plenty of opportunities to do that over the years.
0: Thank you. Well, I think that that was a very modest and humble uh, explanation of who you are, because I know you have a lot more than that. I've a lot of your papers. Uh, you have a lot of published papers, lots of published papers, and a, a very vast amount of interesting work that you've done. Um, I wanted to start off because, uh, just kind of with defining science. In, in classical education, one of the most important learning and teaching principles is to start with definitions. So let's define science. Uh, I know at the very basic level and art is something you do and a science is something you know. Um, Can you expand on this and take us through how you would define science?
1: Well, it's a complicated thing because, of course, in our day, people think of science as something that really hasn't been around for a long time. And I think that that is wrong thinking. I think that science, uh, properly understood, has been around certainly since the ancients, since the peripatetics, people like Aristotle and Theophrastus, uh, one of my favorite characters of of ancient times. I was uh, looking at a definition from Thomas Holyoke's 17th century dictionary, and I actually really like it. Uh, He defined not science, but scientia, or scientia, as some people will pronounce it, as the act of him that knoweth. The act of him that knoweth. Secondly, the state of the thing known. Thirdly, habit of knowledge got by demonstration. And I think that this definition from from Thomas Holyoke is, is excellent because it goes beyond just the act of the person who's knowing, but specifically then understanding the thing that is known, as well as a habit of how you go about getting knowledge by demonstration. And that actually goes back to what Aristotle said. Aristotle was very big into logical demonstration, as was Theophrastus. Uh, Later, of course, in the Middle Ages, Roger Bacon was the one who, in a sense, uh, revitalized sort of the Aristotelian view of science, uh, and and wrote in Opus Maius about uh, experimentation. And, that's really where we get a lot of our more modern ideas about science is experimentation. So what I do with my students is, I say that in the scientific realm of knowing, we get to know by observation and experimentation. And observation, of course, involves all of the senses, the five senses, uh, and experimentation is actually manipulating things, uh, doing some something to help us to better understand what we're studying. And uh, I always like to mm-hmm. give an example of this to my students. I say, well, "What would you guess would would happen if you leave some some a slice of pizza out on the on the cabinet in the kitchen?" And they say, "Well, it might start to mold." And I say, "Okay, what would be the the factors that would affect how rapidly it would mold? How long do you think it might take? If you've ever seen this happen, if a piece of uh, a slice of of pizza's ever been left out?" on the counter in your house, uh, what would you guess might be the period of time it would take for it to start to go green, it starts to go moldy? And what would be the factors that would affect that? And it's amazing the number of things that sixth grade students come up with in saying, well, you know, how much moisture is in the air? That would affect it. And then they said, well, yeah, but also like how much moisture is on the pizza? How much sauce? And maybe the seasonings in the sauce will affect it or the amount of the toppings. Or is it in the light? Or uh, is it in a draft? And so they they start to think about it, and they're they're starting to realize that to do an experiment to test their hypothesis, there are actually multiple factors that have to be considered. What are the parameters that are affecting that? And this is is a great way of uh, engendering conversation in a classroom around an idea. And I've had students come up with tens of different factors that they would have to understand uh, in order to be able to test that hypothesis. And so this is the type of thing that I think that uh, a classical educator will do in the classroom they are centering topics. it's not just delivering information, but they're 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 centering around a topic and they're engaging the students to actually draw upon their experience and to apply their understanding of these various things to the question at hand, what whatever the the mock hypothesis is that's being discussed.
0: I love, I love so much of what you said. And I'm, I'm hearing in that the art of teaching, like this is the art of teaching. Um, even though, you know, I, I I originally said, you know, an art is something you do. Science is something you know. I love that you said the, the um, what was the gentleman's name that defined science?
1: Uh, Roger Bacon.
0: No, before that, the first one.
1: Mm, oh, Thomas Holyoke, yeah,, yeah,
0: I loved that you said he said the act of he that knoweth, and so right there that's the that's the art of teaching science. There's art right. in there because it's the acting of the doing sure. and and I love that. um, there's a couple things that I heard as well um when you said um, letting the students ask questions, sort of, and I love this too, because some people will mistakenly think um, that. When you allow students to lead with a lot of questions, that you're creating a student-centered learning environment. But rather, what I hear you saying is, it's it, that the learning environment is centered around a topic, not the students. But what you are doing is allowing a um, an environment for them to feel comfortable asking a lot of questions.
1: Right, and giving and, lots of sharing, lots of their own ideas, ideas. based on their experience.
0: Right, and I think that's that's brilliant. And, and I also heard you say um, a lot that's important in this is by learning by observation and experimentation. And that also ties in with the art of teaching science. And uh, so that brings me to my next question, which I, I'd like to dig a little deeper in talking about the art of teaching science. So um, a lot of our audience is new teachers, uh, new home educators. And I'd like you to talk to them about what you think are the best practices of the art of teaching science. So um, thinking through K-5 and then 6 through 12, how is the art of teaching science going to be similar and different in, say, K through 5th and 6 through 12? What do you think are the best practices for classical schools?
1: Well, I think there are certain practices that never age, that, that can be applied to, uh, across the, the grade levels whether you're talking K-5 or you're talking 6 through 12, it's it's absolutely critical that we get students out into nature. And when I say out into nature, I, I want to specify that I don't mean a manicured Bermuda grass schoolyard into, into actual wild nature where they're seeing ecosystems, where they're seeing... Uh, plants, uh, native plants versus uh, introduced plants, invasive species, Uh, at one of my schools in Texas. I was thrilled when we moved onto the campus and realized that there was an old stock pond on the campus. They had fenced it off because somebody had seen snakes and they didn't want, you know, liability, kids getting uh, bitten by venomous snakes, if there were any venomous snakes. So I'm like, this is the greatest thing that we have this pond on campus and in fact, I wrote a detailed uh, proposal for how this pond could be used, and the school didn't act upon it when I was there, but later they've built an outdoor classroom next to the pond, they got donated materials to build paths out there, uh, they have students out in the pond uh, taking water specimens and and uh, for an ecology class, and looking at Thermal stratification in the pond water, which was all in my original proposal, and so we. Well, and to... this is
0: also a great opportunity for them to learn snake safety.
1: Right, right. <laughs> so there, there's, there's all of that, but, but again, I've, I've had a, a passion uh, in, in studying about Theophrastus over the last few years. One of the ancients. He was the head of the Lyceum after Aristotle, and I wrote a, wrote a paper in the the journal for the Society of Classical Learning. And in that, one of the things that I I wanted to to shed light on is sort of the approach, sort of the scholarly virtues, if you will, or the scholarly activities, at very least, of Theophrastus as he led the Lyceum. And in his day, Mm -hmm. there were 2,000 people who were in that school, the Lyceum.
0: Yeah, paint a picture for us of what that looked like from your readings and research of him.
1: Well, um, I don't wanna to get too much off onto that, but I'll say this, the peripatetics, of course, had a reputation for, for, for strolling, right? That, that uh, it's, it's the idea of walking and talking. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a great model for us as we work with uh, particularly younger mm-hmm. students is to walk and talk in unmanicured nature, observing, pointing things out, letting kids see things for themselves, And not only seeing for themselves, not only observing, but then describing. This is one of the things I find with my sixth grade students. They say, I see this, but I don't know how to say it.
0: Mm. So we
1: have to say, we've got to give students an opportunity, not just to observe, but to say, how do I put that into words, whether I'm writing it or whether I'm speaking it? And this is, mm-hmm. this is absolutely critical. Scientists do this all the time. I have to do that every time I'm, I'm studying uh, mineralogy or petrology or uh, different things within my own field. I have to say, I have to use words to describe so that someone who reads my work understands what I'm thinking, what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, something that Theophrastus did well was he described well. He wrote descriptions well. Secondly... He uh, engaged in experimentation. And in my article about Theophrastus, again in the journal, SEL's the journal, he talks about people throwing certain things into fire. I'm like, what middle school boy or girl for that matter wouldn't love to see what happens when you throw different things into a fire? Uh-huh. I mean, it's <laughs> like, I can do this for days and say, like, what happens? when you throw this sort of material into a fire, what is, does, is there combustion? What is combustion, right? It's an oxidation reaction or uh, is it, is it consumed? And if it's consumed, what happens to it? Uh, What's produced in that reaction, Mm -hmm. Uh, those kinds of things. And so experimentation is critical. And again, this goes back to the peripatetics back to ancient Greece. And then finally classification that once you've done the, uh, the description, once you've done experimentation, can you take steps and classify things? What Can you can you recognize similarities? Can you recognize differences? The whole idea of comparing and contrasting, this is what scientists, real scientists do every day, mm-hmm. is this thing of comparing and contrasting. So we need for our students in nature to be able to do these things that Theophrastus models so well for us, and that many others since have, have engaged in. And this is what professional scientists do in the laboratory or in the field, uh, every day. So it's, it's absolutely critical.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, do you have your students or have you had your students ever keep nature journals? And what does that look like?
1: I have not because I often was doing my nature stuff on the side because it didn't fit perfectly with my curriculum. If I were teaching, if I were teaching, Uh, about plants. That's not my thing because I'm a geologist, but if I were teaching about plants, I very definitely would have them drawing and labeling and classifying or learning about, you know, Linnaeus's classification or whatever of plants. You know, uh, are are leaves pinnate? Are they uh, serrated sorts of leaves? Or, you know, whatever. What's the venation like in the leaves? And so students without a lot of prompting and without actually reading what the experts do they can come up with those sorts of things right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are is it a single leaf on this on this little stem or is this are there multiple leaves and so those sorts of things students can discover for themselves and and then say okay they may say oh, well i'm not a good artist i say well how can you be how how can you know unless you do it and so you can improve and it's interesting to see that earth scientists geologists Way back in the early parts of the the 20th century, it was amazing because everybody didn't have portable cameras like we do now in in telephones or, you know, nice digital cameras. The field drawings of these scientists back even just 100 years ago were amazingly detailed. And one of the things that I like to remind my students is your eye can see things that a camera lens cannot capture. Mm -hmm. I can I can see things. And you know this, if you've ever had a, a, a camera in your telephone and you see a beautiful sky and you take a picture of it, you yeah. say, you know, it's a beautiful, it's, it's a nice picture, but it's not as beautiful as what my eyes saw. Mm-hmm. And this is something to drive home to our students is that your eye can see things, unless you have some sort of visual impairment, your eye can see things that a camera lens cannot capture. And so... You need to learn to do nature drawings. You need to learn to do drawings in the field that will capture things that your eye sees, but that the camera cannot capture.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, give us some stories and some practical examples of um, things you've done with your students in your classrooms.
1: I started uh, some years ago having my students work with uh, unknowns. We all know about unknowns in chemistry class, high school chemistry, where you're given an unknown solution and you have to do various tests to determine what it is. Well, most students, unless they're odd like I was as a child, don't really know much about rock. They know it's a rock and they may know it's shinier. They may know it's pretty. But what I do, I've collected this sized specimens of a variety of rocks. Some are sedimentary, some are igneous, some are metamorphic. And each student at the beginning of the year chooses one that they're going to study. The first time that they study it, they know nothing, right? It's just what their senses take in. And this is one of those places where students will say, well, Mr. Mitt, I see this, but I don't know how to describe it. That's why we're doing this, Johnny, right? You have to figure out words that describe what you're seeing and will communicate to a reader what you're seeing. So, um, each one of the students gets an unknown rock specimen, and at first, all they're doing is using their senses and their ability to to use language to describe what they're seeing. And again, they have no expert knowledge. Maybe in an earlier grade, they've learned about igneous, metamorphic, and sedimentary rocks, but that doesn't mean that just looking at at a rock specimen that they could actually identify, oh, this is an igneous rock, or this is a metamorphic rock, or this is a sedimentary rock. Because, again, that's sort of specialist knowledge. So at the beginning of the year, they just write, it's rough, it smells dirty, uh, it's this big. I allow them to use a ruler just so that they feel like they're accomplishing something by measuring it. And I introduce the the whole idea of maximum dimension because it's not a regular solid like a a, rect- a rectangular prism or something. You know, it's an irregular specimen. So what's the maximum dimension uh-huh. of this right. specimen? There's not a height and a length and a width. It's it's irregular. And so, what's the maximum dimension, or what's the minimum dimension? That's the that's a, a scientist's way of approaching that. So, as the year goes on, they actually study about minerals and properties that can be used to uh, identify minerals within within the rock. And so then they they get the rock specimens again and they say, oh, I can test for hardness. I can describe the luster. I can see if it has a streak. I can see, uh, is, is there an obvious crystal form? Uh, is there cleavage or is there fracture? All of these different sorts of things. So they take their new knowledge that they've gotten in class and they start to apply it to their specimen. And of course, as we're teaching them the these different properties, they're seeing those things in, in excellent mineral specimens. Now they take that knowledge and apply it to their unknown and say, can I use those same things that I've learned about to identify minerals that make up this rock? Then later in the year, kind of quite late in the year, after they've learned about the rock types, igneous and metamorphic and sedimentary, and they get a special, just a chapter from the textbook that helps them, as well as uh, a table of mineral, for mineral identification in the previous phase, then they can take their mineral compositions, their, their the, take the mineralogy of the rock, and then say can i identify the rock type so if i have a rock that's made up of sort of gray quartz and maybe some white feldspar and some black biotite mica what could this be what type of rock could this be given mm-hmm. the the textures given the mineralogy uh, given kind of the the overall appearance of the rock uh the crystal size or grain size if it's a sedimentary rock can they now identify the the rock type and say, oh, this is a a light-colored granite, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Something like that. Or this is a a conglomerate uh, that's made up of these types of poorly sorted sedimentary clasts or something. And so they actually get to the point at the end of the year that they're making fairly sophisticated identifications of what at the beginning of the year was just it's a rock, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they they study the mineralogy, then they study the petrology, the, the rock identification, and they actually say, oh, okay, so I know that this had to have formed in this sort of geologic context.
0: Okay, so what I hear that I think makes that very classical is that you're not just using a checklist of, oh, we're going to teach rocks this month, check, we're going to teach, you know, each thing, each month, each topic. But what you're doing is you're spiraling back to help them. Your objective can't be captured in one lesson because your objective is actually to help them learn how to make connections and how to um, verbally explain the connections they're making. So you're having like a bigger, this is a more classical way of teaching because your objective is about helping them learn how to make connections and helping them to express those ideas, right. rather and to, than and to when take they ideas when, right and when they do that, then they're actually keeping the knowledge
1: right about the so rock. They, they learn, sure, they learn particular properties and and how to test for those properties, but then they're saying, okay, I I can do this with any rock specimen that right. I come across. It's not just this rock specimen. I could do the same thing with any rock specimen. Mm-hmm. And if I know how to do that, if I have, let's say, some simple book or table of, of properties of minerals, I could identify uh, the vast majority of rock-forming minerals. And that's going to then help me uh, as I take into account the textures and the fabrics of the rock to actually identify the rock. And, then and so you're, if teaching dis- them,
0: you're teaching them the process of how to think like a scientist. That's right. what I hear that you're doing.
1: Right.
0: You're teaching them how to observe, how to think, how to ask the questions, how to make the connections, how to record it. But it right. does you can't do that in one lesson with an objective up on the on the chalkboard. Right. It's a process. And this is why classical education sometimes is difficult I think for parents to understand because the process is a lot slower. Sure. It's it's not just ticking off a box so that I can pass the test. And I, I would love for you to share a little bit too about your view of how to use a textbook, because I know you've helped to write some textbooks. Tell us a little bit about that, and how 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 would a classical teacher use textbooks?
1: Well, uh, yeah, that's a that's a tremendous question. I think I think that there are great classical teachers who may use textbooks differently than I do. Uh, I, I haven't written a text. I've done plenty of writing, but I haven't written a textbook. I was the technical one of the technical reviewers on Novari's uh, Earth Science textbook. And I think that my participation in that project was ultimately good for the book. Uh, not only am I a PhD geologist, but I worked for 17 years as a, as a professional editor, scientific editor, and so I brought some things to the project that, that a lot of technical reviewers would not. Uh, but having said that, as I was thinking about how textbooks are used, I think that some people make it their whole curriculum. You know, mm-hmm. the, the textbook is what we teach. Uh, the second thing is that there are people who introduce a new subject by having their students read the textbook. and And, and both of those are, I'm not saying that they're wrong, but I'm convinced that the teacher is the textbook ultimately. In classical education, the teacher is the text. And so the textbook itself is supplementary to who the teacher is and what the teacher does and what the teacher models. So for me, I tend to mainly use a textbook. Uh, I, I assign portions of reading as review of subjects that we've covered. That helps them to helps the students, the readers to pull together uh, maybe with some more kind of color commentary in certain areas or uh, with different graphics and different things to solidify their understanding rather than to to teach the textbook the textbook I use mainly as a review tool. <laughs> uh, there are times where I use it to introduce the subject, and that's legitimate, but for me personally, I like like it to be where i I remain sort of the text. the teacher is the text, and then the the actual textbook, the literal textbook, is supplementary to what the teacher does and what that means is the teacher is an expert, right mm-hmm. The teacher mm-hmm. has expert right. knowledge it's based upon experience, whether it be in a laboratory in the field. Uh, or in right. the library, because a what, lot of what scientists do is in the library.
0: Right. And I think that's more important, especially in science for the K-12 model, because you're getting into the more specific sciences. But for K-5, um, a lot of classical, most classical schools are self-contained. So you have your teachers who are uh, practitioners, not necessarily experts in every subject, right? but generalists, you know. Sure. Um. So, which is also another great reason why nature study works wonderfully for k five
1: <laughs> sure, absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know you've um you've also done some really great work with integrating um, science with poetry, and you're really big on integrating. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: well, I think that my my ideas are all based upon a, a presupposition that I have about truth pursuit, and that is that there's a unity of knowledge. Uh, I'm not the first one to say that all truth is God's truth. And if all truth is God's truth, that means that truth, wherever we find it, is from God and consistent with his character, his will, and his plan. And if that's the case, then that means that no true knowledge can be in conflict with any other true knowledge and i need i need for my students to understand that our scientific interpretation can be wrong but so can our theological interpretation or our historical interpretation so i developed some years ago actually over two decades ago i developed a diagram that i call the three realms of knowing that that helps me to communicate to students how everything fits must fit together doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we never have apparent conflicts but it does mean that somewhere on my interpretation of my data may be wrong. And I liken this with my students to a connect the dots drawing. Everybody's done a connect the dots drawing and connect the dots drawings are great as long as you can count, right? You can go from one to two to three. Well, in science, our data isn't all numbered for us like that. But what I like to point out to students is that anyone can collect data. I'm not saying everyone does it well, but anyone can learn to collect data, to be careful to record data uh, consistently and carefully without transcription errors and without other sorts of uh, error that's introduced in the process. The real challenge comes in science is how to make sense of your data. Hmm. So how do you interpret your data? How you connect the dots? If you connect the dots properly with your scientific data, you get a, a true picture of reality. If you incorrectly connect your data, you get an improper or an untrue picture of reality. And the same thing can apply to historical interpretation or theological interpretation. (laughs) Uh, We can have all of the data, right? We can have the biblical text and say this is inerrant in, in, in the original manuscripts, but that doesn't mean our interpretation of it is incorrect, is always correct. It may be incorrect. And so think of all of the theological interpretations that are out there of particular passages, they can't all be right. We have something that's called the law of non-contradiction. It was introduced to us by Aristotle at at least that early, if not before. And so um, this is is really uh, vital that we help our students to understand the unity of knowledge and that no true knowledge will conflict or compete with other true knowledge. It all has to fit together if our interpretations of our data are correct. Mm -hmm. And so this is actually a way that I introduce, I kind of start my class with that each year uh, to help students to understand that everything must fit together. So one of the things, back to your your comment about how I do horizontal integration, is I like to use poetry in my class, uh, at least at classical Christian schools where I've taught. I start the year pretty early on with uh, Coleridge's poem, Hymn Before Sunrise, in the Vale of Chamonix. And the basic idea of it is Vale of Chamonix is at the, at the foot of Mont Blanc uh, in the in the Alps. And yeah, there's some sort of challenging old language in it because this is written, you know, late 1700s, early 1800s. But the, the big idea of Hymn Before Sunrise is that the that the poet is there before sunrise in this valley at the foot of this huge mountain and his senses are just exploding with with smells and with sights and with sounds and he's putting into words what he is seeing this is what scientists do mm-hmm. right description so there's description of what the poet is experiencing but So he's drawing on all the sensory data. He's trying to put that into words. And then he's saying how that makes him feel and what that leads him to. And it's basically a psalm, right? And and he basically, in the poem, as it goes on, he is basically calling all of nature to join him in, in worshiping the one that, at the end of the first sort of stanza, he said, entranced in prayer, I worship the invisible alone. So the invisible is capitalized there. He's talking about God, right? And so as he goes on, he's describing more, but he's, he's describing the emotions as he, as he interacts with, with nature, but specifically how it's leading him to worship as he's, as he's gathering the sensory information that is actually leading him to worship uh, the sovereign God. And it's really beautiful. It ends with, great hierarch. He's, he's talking to Mont Blanc here. He says, great hierarch, tell thou the silent sky and tell the stars and tell yon rising sun earth with her thousand voices praises God. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a beautiful, beautiful thing that, that our observations of nature lead us to tell forth God's praises, which is just exactly what the Psalms did.
0: How do your students respond to that poem?
1: I think they actually really enjoy it. We we have some uh, language things that we have to work through, mm-hmm. right? Because there's some old words uh, that that they won't always understand, or where the poet takes "sovereign," the word "sovereign," and shortens and, and spells it differently. Right. But but those are those are fairly easy things to work through. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a great thing as we read this sort of stanza by stanza to say what's what's the poet experiencing here? Mm-hmm. How's the poet describing uh, that experience? What does that experience lead the poet to do, right, to, to worship?
0: Yeah, those and, are great questions. Those are very Socratic.
1: And so this is something, I, I can't use it at my current school just because it's it's a, uh, an independent school with people from a lot of different educational backgrounds, but I've always used this poem Uh, with my students at classical and Christian schools. Another poem that I really like, because we study space science at the beginning of the year, and my approach is, uh, even though textbooks don't don't always set things up this way, I like to start with space science and then zoom in. So Mm -hmm. from space science, then we get into the atmosphere, then we get to solid earth, and then we get to more particulars about soils and water. So this zooming in approach makes it a logical sort of sequence of topics. And frankly, it's it's logical too, because without the sun, uh, our star giving us the radiation that it does and the warmth and the light, life isn't going to happen on the planet, right? That's part of the divine design of the way things are set up uh, in in our universe. And that's that's good for us. Mm-hmm. But there, as we kind of toward the end of our section of study about the celestial sphere or space, I read a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Mm-hmm. It's called I am, a, I am Like a Slip of Comet. And what he does in the poem is he compares his own life to the life of a comet, where uh, think about a comet when it's out in deep space is not even visible to the eye. But as it approaches the sun, the frozen gases and whatnot that are in the head of the comet start to melt and that's what causes this incredible celestial experience that we call you know a comet and so and that's what produces the tail on the comet and so he compares the poet compares his life to the appearance of a comet going around the sun and then going back out into space and he he ends he ends the the poem he says, and then she goes out, talking about the comet, then she goes out into the cavernous dark. So I go out, my little sweet is done. I've drawn heat from this contagious sun to not ungentle death, now forth I run. So he's talking about his own life being like the life of a comet, the appearance and then the disappearance, if you will, of a comet. But but note how he, said, he, he refers to his life as a little sweet. A little sweet. And then he says, to not ungentle death, now forth I run. He had no fear of death. Mm. Not ungentle death, right? It's a double negative. Not ungentle death, now forth I run. Why was he not afraid of death? Because he had drawn heat from this contagious sun, right? He had done what he was supposed to do in his life. And so he and he had the faith commitment, the the uh, the connection to the sun that was necessary so now he could go to death and it was un, it was not ungentle death it's a gentle death there's no fear of death here by the poet and interestingly he only lived to be about 45 years old
0: wow that's amazing um well oh my gosh i i have a whole list of more questions and i'm i'm feeling like we're out of time and i'm thinking we're def- we're definitely going to have you on Multiple times. Um, and I I guess let's a couple things. before we close out, every time we close out an interview, I ask um, what quote from a book has had a huge impact on you, or is there an author that you think is underread or often misunderstood that teachers ought to pay be pay more attention to? I think that question would probably be great for science because (laughs) there's probably a lot of scientists who are under Right. Right. So, um, if you want to answer one of those and then we'll close it out, I do want our listeners to be thinking about what other questions they would have for you. And maybe on our Facebook page, they could, um, they could share those questions. Um, I think our, our Facebook page is just classical education. Um, so I'd love to hear from our listeners what other questions so we can have you on multiple times and get more questions answered. But um, which of those questions do you want to answer, a quote or an author that you think is underread and misunderstood?
1: Well, right now, I think I'll go with a quotation because this is one I actually use with my students uh, at all of my schools. I've used this quotation because I say that what we're doing in science class and, and frankly in all of life, in all of our classes, we're, we're pursuing truth. And uh, in my three realms of knowing, there's of course a scientific realm of knowing. There's what I call the documentary realm of knowing for answering historical questions. And then a metaphysical realm of knowing, which I I say answers the ultimate questions. Uh, But in that, kind of under that umbrella, as I'm talking about truth pursuit, I use a, a, a quotation from Tolstoy that I think only shows up in his diaries. And it says this, truth like gold is not to be obtained by its growth, but by washing away from it, all that is not gold. So what Mm -hmm. the, what, what he does is he describes, or he, he compares truth pursuit to panning for gold. Mm -hmm. Now, most people who've panned for gold know where you go to a tourist trap and you pay 10 or 20 bucks and get a little bag of, of sand and gravel. And they, they actually, uh, put some baubles in there, so you feel like you've gotten your money's worth. They put in a little piece of amethyst or they put in a little piece of opal or something, but it's like, they want to make money off of this. So they just give you a bag of this material and you're satisfied if you find some little crystal or some little fossil or something. But the the fact of the matter is, panning for gold is hard, hard work. Uh, it's, it's dangerous, it can be dangerous work. Uh, it can be backbreaking work. You usually have to go through tons of sand and gravel to even have a hope of finding any color, right, any gold. So I, I like I use this because I want my students to understand that truth pursuit is hard work. Mm. Uh, it can be dangerous work even. Uh, not necessarily physically dangerous, but it could be dangerous to our reputation, right, because we might be swimming upstream. We might be going against the flow of what everybody else thinks. And there are lots and lots of things. All you have to do is spend a few minutes on Facebook to see that people argue about a lot of things. It's pretty unpopular to go against the flow of, of public opinion. And so students, students need to realize that truth pursuit uh, that involves some peril. Uh, it's hard work to, to get a hold of truth. It's not you know, kind of the proverbial just kind of falling off a log, but it requires, uh, in some cases, people dedicate their lives to to answering a question, it may take decades to find those sorts of answers. And, and I think that we serve our students well if they realize that truth pursuit is hard work, mm. but it's worth it because of the potential precious payout. When you get truth, when you lay hold of truth, when you uh, get that thing that you've worked so hard for, you will understand how precious it is, mm-hmm. right? Because you've, you've dedicated your life to the task. And it truly is, because again, all truth is God's truth. and if if we're pursuing that with uh, with passion and with focus and willing to to put in the effort, the potential payout is indeed precious.
0: That's beautiful. In fact, it's making me want to have a whole podcast with you just on what is pursuing truth, what is pursuing goodness, and what is pursuing beauty in science? What does that look like in a classroom? Those three oh. topics.
1: I'd be happy to to discuss that with
0: you. Oh, that would be a great session. But uh, yeah, can you read that quote one more time?
1: Sure. Truth, like gold, is not to be obtained by its growth, but by washing away from it all that is not gold.
0: That's beautiful. And I'm so happy that you picked a Tolstoy quote and not just a a scientist. Even though there's wonderful scientist quotes, I'm happy that you tied in literature to science.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, that's my thing. And I, I think, you know, there was one other thing that I, I wanted to mention. Uh, and this is, it's been attributed to Jack London. It's been called his credo. And I, I'd like to read it in closing. I know we're we're probably yeah. over time. But oh, no, is,
0: please do. Yes.
1: It's not long. And it's supposedly from the Bulletin, which I think was a newspaper in San Francisco. Uh, and it's dated December 2nd, 1916. But listen to what, I use this in science class because he compares his life to a meteor, okay? And Mm -hmm. of course, we study meteors and meteorites and things like that in my science class. So he says this, I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather that my spark should burn out in a brilliant blaze than it should be stifled by dry rot. I would rather be a superb meteor every atom of me in magnificent glow than a sleepy and permanent planet. The function of man is to live not to exist. I shall not waste my days trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. And you know I think that this is basically the same idea of memento mori of of re- realizing that you're mortal and therefore that knowledge that that you are subject to death and will die should inform and should empower and should propel you through life to use your time wisely. Mm -hmm. And and he says, I want to be a superb meteor, not a a sleepy planet. I want to blaze. Now, he may have been, you know, an existentialist like Hemingway, but the point is he's, he's drawing upon scientific knowledge, understanding. He's applying that to life. And I think that that's a beautiful thing when we do that. Mm-hmm. And and Hopkins does that. Uh, Jack London does it here in his credo. And there are lots of things like this that I think that good classical educators must draw upon so that they see that what they're learning down the hall in their humanities class is not competing with, but instead it's, it's interdigitating with what they're studying in their science class. All of this fits together and is beautiful when we see the unity of knowledge.
0: That's great. You've done an awesome job at giving us just a taste for how teaching science classically helps students make connections to all of life. And Absolutely. I think that I'm excited to have you back on again. I want to hear more. I know you have so much more, more wisdom to share with us. So, um, But thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page, visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, Well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.